uplifted listeners or listener at this point. It might be singular. It's been a while. Uh, I'm Serena. I'm one of the co-hosts of the Blacklisted podcast with Justin Brooks. Um, And I'm happy to be recording this right now. Uh, I felt like I've had a lot to say, but didn't have a chance to really slow down and record anything. Um, So today I just wanted to give some updates on where I'm at in my law school journey at the moment and talk about some things that have been on my mind. Um, First, you'll probably notice that Justin isn't here at the moment and it's a little bit different to be recording by myself. It feels kind of weird to be honest. But um, Justin and I had made plans to record together months ago and kind of like set a tentative schedule for ourselves. But, you know, after the spring semester was abruptly cut short, we ended up in different parts of the country for a while um, on and off over a few months. So now I'm back in a place where I have a moment to record something and decided I'd sit down and talk to you all and kind of update you on where I've been. Um, So today I wanted to start by explaining some updates um, about law school for myself and then share some notes that I have from a panel discussion that I participated in. um, That I participated in, I think, three or four weeks ago now during the first week of school. um, And the topic was on race and legal education. And I feel like this audience can appreciate where I'm coming from with that. So I'll share some thoughts that I had. Um, But first, I wanted to take some time to say rest in peace to Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Elijah McClain, and Dominique Remy-Fells. I think a lot of you, just like Justin and myself, have been going through a lot with, I don't know, trying to process just the sheer amount of death that we've seen or injury like with um, Jacob Blake. And it's hard to process, and I don't know if I have fully done that yet, but it is nice to have this space where I know I personally honor them in my heart and have held them in my prayers, and I'm sure a lot of you are as well. Um, And if you haven't been thinking about it, then I invite you to engage with the Black Lives Matter movement because it's really important, not just for black people, but for all people to start reconciling just the history and culture of violence that still exists in this country. Um, And I know that I hope one day we'll see significant change where we don't have to go through periods like this where we just experience so much death and tragedy. So I hope you enjoy the podcast today and bear with me because I know it's going to be weird to just hear my voice the whole time and um, you might hear the fart like the train (laughs) go by as well because I'm sitting by the window in my apartment right now and it drives me crazy honestly but if you hear that just let it go and try to enjoy this episode. The first thing I wanted to update you all on is where I've been since I last was recording an episode with Justin, which has been a while, honestly, but that's just kind of how it is. This is a passion project for us both right now, so we just kind of have to take it in stride and record when we can and when we feel inspired. Um, But where I've been since March when everything got cut short and we all basically got sent home from school, I spent some time back home with my family, which was really great. and I really appreciated spending time with them, especially when we were still figuring out what COVID-19 was even going to mean. Because back in March, a lot of you probably remember, there was just a lot of uncertainty and a lot of different information coming out as scientists tried to figure out what information was the truth at the time for all of us to be listening to. So things were really difficult and confusing, but I really appreciated getting some extra time with my family because personally, I don't really travel home that much throughout the semester. So It was really, I guess, a blessing in disguise to get that extra time with them. Um, So I did that. 
I currently moved back to Berkeley, um, so I'm in the East Bay right now uh, for school again. But I've also just been doing a lot. Like at the end of last semester, I was still participating in the International Human Rights Law Clinic, so I finished my work with them. I participated in a virtual summer program for my summer job, um, which was like headquartered in San Francisco, but I did it from home most of the time um, at my family's home because we were all virtual. There was no going into the office. It was a really exhausting and bizarre experience. Um, like, I don't know, like working remotely full time. And I felt like it had unique challenges as far as like trying to build connections in the office. I think people at my program did a great job like trying to reach out to us, but it's just, as I'm sure a lot of you know, it's just exhausting just like staring at the computer all day, especially like staring at yourself, talking to people on the computer when you're trying to network and like be super nice. Um, it just felt like a lot longer than the however many weeks it was. Um, so I did that and then I started um, our virtual semester for school. Um, our dean decided we wouldn't be going back um, in person for the fall. So um, I've been working at my apartment with my friend Emma, who's also a 3L in law school. And it's been going okay, I guess. It's just continued that same trend of being really exhausting. And I feel like there's some challenges for the virtual semester as well with attendance requirements that feel kind of ridiculous right now. People being asked to have their cameras on all the time, even in their private space. Just constantly being visible is really hard. Um, and the attendance requirements and like extra requirements if you like miss a class seem kind of punitive to me, um, especially for students who are maybe in different time zones than where the classes are based. And for students with chronic health conditions, it just seems really harsh, especially right now during a pandemic to be asking students to turn in extra assignments for missing a live class, even though they're responsible adults who will likely view the lecture at their own time later. It just, it's not it for me. Um, so that's been really difficult to understand why that's happening. And some of my friends and I have been talking about it and we think it's probably the university trying to justify how much money we're being charged, um, which I know that money goes to some things that actually matter like salaries for staff who keep the universities up and running, such as maintenance, who work really hard um, to keep that environment safe. But at the same time, adding in all these extra requirements when so much of us are going through like multiple tragic experience all at once. Like some of us aren't just thinking about the pandemic. Some of us are thinking about the pandemic and also worried about family or ourselves and also thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement. And some people live in cities that have literally been burned to the ground multiple nights in a row. And I don't think the university is open to truly reckoning with that, which has been pretty disappointing to be honest. So I'm still navigating how I'm gonna make it through 14 weeks of this semester. Um, and I just wanna stay safe and I just want my family to stay safe, um, which I'm sure people out there can relate to. I also started a new clinic this year. So I'm in the Berkeley Law Death Penalty Clinic this year. Um, last year was International Human Rights. This year I'm in Death Penalty. And it's really different for me to be in this type of clinic because I've never, um, worked like as a defense attorney, let alone for like criminal defense. Um, it's something that I've cared about for a long time. And even in my work in international human rights, 
um, abolishing the death penalty is something I feel very passionately about. Um, so I feel like this was a really good opportunity for me. And I think the professors of this clinic are just top-notch practitioners and professors. And it's really great to be in like this group of students who really cares about this issue. But it's definitely, um, how do I say this? <laughs> of course it's time consuming because it's like literally some of the most important work you could do. But I think it's also just very, it's two things at once. It's like very emotionally draining just because what incredible work and what an incredible responsibility that you're engaging in when you're doing this type of work for capital defense. Um, and at the same time, even though it feels draining, it also feels very life-giving because I feel like in the midst of everything that's happened and like the momentum that Black Lives Matter has gained in the last few months, um, I mean, being very much aware that cops killing or attempting to kill black people has not stopped, but it's been very visible in the last few months. Um, working on a project like Capital Defense feels like a small way that I can contribute in a way that matters and feels significant, which I think is really important for me. And it's kind of given me something to latch onto that I feel good about. And I don't feel so stagnant. And I feel like it's a way that I can advocate as somebody who's very much in law school and like on the inside of the system. It's a way I can advocate for somebody's life, um, which is clearly um, at risk. So I hope that makes sense. But I think it's really important that we all find ways right now, whether we're students or not, to contribute in a way that either feels safe or feels important enough that you can risk your safety, whether that's mental and emotional or physically. Um, because I know that not everybody has the option to go out right now and to be organizing um, in the streets or participating in protests physically. But I think there are other ways that we can help and something that's unique about getting your JD um, is that like new avenues are open to you. Like I couldn't work in capital defense if I was anywhere else in the world right now. Um, so I'm trying to make the most of this opportunity while I can. I'm also still um, editor-in-chief of the Berkeley Journal of African-American Law and Policy this year, which is another great um, organization right now to be involved with. Um, we just published an issue recently um, and it felt really good to put that scholarship out in the world that kind of like centers black voices on one hand and then just the black experience on the other hand in academia, which is traditionally exclusive to non-white voices. Um, so I'm really excited about continuing that work. But also all of this just feels uh, just overwhelming at times because I wanna be involved in all these things, of course, but I'm still just trying to survive this pandemic like everybody else. And it feels like when we're so focused on school and these activities, we kind of like lose sight of what's actually happening and how tragic these circumstances really are and how much it is changing the landscape of the world. Um, so yeah, that's some of the things that are on my mind, but that's kind of where I'm at for school. It's my last year, which feels amazing. I can't believe it. And I, I really love that we did this podcast, and even though we don't have like tons of episodes, it's just interesting to think about where I'm at now versus where I was two years ago, like coming into law school um, as just like this, I don't know, I felt, looking back now, it is in a sense I was so naive about what I would face and I didn't really, I think, I couldn't have had a full understanding of what I would go through in these last two years and how much I would grow as a person and how much I would learn. And obviously there's still so much to learn, but um, 
I'm glad that we kind of have this little time capsule of, I don't know, thoughts that came up for Justin and myself on kind of where we were then versus how we are now. I think it's going to be interesting to look back on. Um, and I always, we always say at some point, they're like, oh yeah, and we'll keep recording. So like, we'll be more consistent, but I don't know. I feel like it just is what it is at this point, And I'm enjoying popping in when we feel inspired. But yeah, I'm glad to be back and glad to be kind of like capturing this moment of where I am at my third year in law school. On the very first day of 3L, I participated in a panel hosted by the law school um, and the title was Race and Legal Education. And there was a really great group of speakers that were on this panel. Um, I was really just happy to participate, I guess, because um, I'd never really done a panel discussion before. Um, so it was a first for me and there were some great professors there. Um, I don't know if I can remember everybody off the top of my head, but I know, for example, Abby Atkinson um, was on the panel and she's an amazing professor. Um, and she's been mentioned on the podcast before because I just find her incredibly inspiring. And she's just such a genuinely kind person and she's just so incredibly intelligent. And I think I've just enjoyed every experience I've ever had being in her classroom. Um, she's one of the very, very few black women professors that I've ever had in my life. Um, and I think one of the two that I've had while at law school. And um, last semester I was in her class um, which was critical theories of legal education. So I just couldn't imagine a better person to be on that panel but her because she's been thinking of these issues for so long and especially how to integrate critical theories into legal education, critical theories as in critical race theory, um, like gender studies, like like critical feminist theory is one way to say it. Um, just so many things. And I think she's done a lot of work investigating like debt and how the legal system uses that to prey on people essentially target the poor. Um, so I just think she's such an incredible professor and I was glad that I got to speak on a panel with her that felt like an honor. Um, and there was a bunch of great people there as well. And then um, a 2L named Ray Durham was also part of the panel and he did great. And he called out a lot of really amazing points about how we approach race and legal education. And this is like a topic generally that I've cared about for a while. And I think especially, I mean, <laughs> Justin and I both care about this. We created this podcast because we just felt like we were missing so much during 1L and then continuing on throughout law school in regards to talking about how social context shapes the law and how that affects how judges make decisions um, and even just dynamics between students and professors. Like there's just nothing that in law school that race doesn't touch. And that just feels so obvious to me um, because I care, but I guess it's not obvious to people who don't. But I hope if they watched that panel discussion, they felt a little bit more inspired to put an effort in to address some of these issues. And I think it was an interesting experience because to put yourself in my position, it was the first day of school. I'm happy to participate in this because Ray asked me, he's one of the student body presidents at our law school. Um, and I trusted his judgment, I guess, on like including me on this. But I also felt incredibly uncomfortable with the fact that this conversation was happening right then. It just in the wake of so much tragedy that we had faced, and I'm like, now we're talking about race, like, it's just the first time that, like, I feel like the school has made a concerted effort to, like, host, like, a, because this is a series of panel discussions, and they all have different topics, and a lot of them have dealt with race, but, like, this is one of the first times I felt like they've made, like, some sort of, like, effort to consistently do something, and it's just discussions, 
And that just strikes me as odd. I do appreciate it because I think creating space for those conversations is important. Um, but I think I just don't believe it. <laughs> and I don't think that's my fault for not believing it. I think that's the fault of, like, first, the culture of white supremacy that we live in, and also institutions that definitely profit off of white supremacy, such as large institutions like universities, such as Berkeley. Um, they benefit a lot from that. And I think it's going to take more than a series of conversations to inspire me and other students of color to trust that they're actually going to take steps to address their role in perpetuating some of these harms that cause tragedies. Um, so we'll see what happens. But in my opinion, conversations on race at the law school and at businesses, because they've been doing it too over the last few months, like we've all seen commercials addressing black lives and like quoting Maya Angelou and quoting Angela Davis, um, you know, for their sneakers or for candy or whatever it is. Um, so places like businesses in the law school, these conversations are happening way too late, right? Like right now is too late. Brianna Taylor and Dominique Bells and George Floyd, like they're already gone. And Jacob Blake was already shot seven times. So having these conversations now, I'm just thinking, why weren't you listening when we asked you years ago and months ago and weeks ago and days ago to like do something and to take a stand and to help and to start deconstructing some of these systems of harm. Like where were you before those tragedies happened? And now you want to have a conversation? Something about that is just off to me. And I think like another black person could be targeted tomorrow or right now and it'll continue to happen until we stop creating working groups and stop creating discussion groups and start just working. And I think universities have a long way to go on that front and not just trying to have voices um, from the university be relevant in the moment and start having it be consistently part of change. I hope that's coming across clearly. Like I value, I guess, what could come of it, but I think it's just a very, very small small drop in the ocean of what needs to happen to create something that's lasting and create something that's meaningful. And I think it's just going to take a lot more than having conversations that we post. You can view the conversations. Some of them are really great. They're on like the Berkeley YouTube page. But I just, I want more. And I think a lot of people want more. And it feels slightly opportunistic to me to have people, especially people who have been anti-Black in the past, participate in these conversations now and like get to promote their work and promote what they're doing for students of color, which, hmm, I mean, I know what Abby's doing because she's in constant conversation with students of color. I don't know what a lot of other people are doing that were on other panel discussions. So I'm just putting it out there that maybe this is the first step towards something bigger. And I'm glad they're participating now and maybe they're just learning about how racism affects the world now. Um, but I'm looking forward to what they're going to do next once the hype dies down and it doesn't help them promote their work anymore. What will happen? I guess we'll see. So that's like the first general impressions that I had of this panel and other discussions that have been hosted. Um, my topic that I spoke about for this like race and legal education panel was experiencing the 1L curriculum, specifically as a black woman, as a first generation professional student. And I talked about um, how many students like myself have aspects of our identity 
reduced to like single units on the syllabus of these doctrinal courses that we have during 1L. Um, like we'll go the entire time just learning doctrine and then at the end of a few weeks or at the end of the semester we'll say, well how does race play into all of this? You know, how does gender play into all of this? Maybe this cop was racist or maybe this judge didn't actually have a valid opinion. He was just being racist. And then I feel like we're expected to just assume that's going to like trickle back in time to every conversation about every case we've had when that's one, not effective and two, it just doesn't happen. Um, so I want to talk about like what that felt like to feel like the curriculum was being so reductive in terms of identity and the cultural relevance and like social context, contextual relevance of um, how the law is formed. And I talked about how feeling like I didn't really belong in those rooms because of that um, really shaped my experience as a 1L. It really made me feel very disillusioned, first of all, with the law and how people talk about the law and the next generation of lawyers and how they're taught to think about the law as doctrine first and then maybe people second or third or fourth. Um, I think that was a big part of 1L for me in that is not just myself, it's a lot of students, especially black students and students of color um, across the country um, have expressed similar sentiments to that. Um, and part of the problem is that professors really have no idea how to integrate conversations about race and gender and class into their lectures. And I don't know why that is because I think there is just a wide world of resources that they could tap into on their own campuses and then on the internet and in all the sources that they have in their network, they could do it, but a lot of them, they really don't. Um, and it's just, it needs to be said that it's so different to incorporate critical race theory into the lecture. It's so different to do that than it is to just put examples of black people being harmed in your textbook and say that it's a diverse <laughs> textbook. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean because when students ask you to talk about race, they don't just say, oh, well, I want to see the plaintiff described as black. Like, I want to know how the plaintiff or the defendant being black shaped the way that this decision came out. Like, I want to know how this decision impacts marginalized communities, where it causes harm and why, and if that's what it was intended to do. And that's just scratching the surface. But what we're getting is, oh, well, here's an example in your legal professions textbook of a black man being hurt like what do you think about that <laughs> like that's not critical race theory it's just it really blows my mind still to this day um and a lot of professors aren't trained in this and they don't study it and that's certainly a a choice that they're making um i think it's a bad one personally and i think it causes more harm um than they maybe even realize it does but it's definitely a choice um so that's something that i wanted to highlight and I'm just like looking through like these notes that I had for what I wanted to say. Um, and I know one of the things that I highlighted was that this feeling that black students face and that I face of not belonging, it's due to like stark differences in class privilege among students and also from low numbers of black students generally and low numbers of faculty generally, which is certainly exacerbated by issues of colorism as well because even among the black students that are selected to attend, like top schools like Berkeley, it's interesting that so many of them happen to be light-skinned or mixed. And what does that mean for the visibility of black students on campus and like what voices are represented? And I know like your skin complexion doesn't always relate to your experience, but I think it certainly does play a role in how you're perceived. And 
I don't know if the university is taking steps actively to address that. And I don't know if any university is taking steps to address that. And how are so many darker skinned students being filtered out so early? I don't know. Like, that's something that I think they should investigate and something I think we should think about consciously in groups for black students when we're looking around and how we can speak more openly about colorism. So that's something I pointed out. And like the class difference thing is very, very real, especially for universities that consider themselves T14s or whatever. Um, students just are coming from vastly different backgrounds and that's so apparent, especially the first year when so many of you are forced together so often. Um, I don't know if students fully appreciate the difficulty of that. Um, I know I didn't necessarily expect it. I definitely felt imposter syndrome coming in, but I didn't think it would be so blatant all the time. And like, I remember just, even in discussing a case, I think it was in my torts class, like hearing what certain students thought about this man who I think he used to be like, I don't know, like a lawyer probably, something happened to him. And now he, I think he was asked by his employer, which he thought was retaliation to like, um, take on a role that was more akin to like a maintenance person and like hearing the students talk about like oh god like I couldn't imagine anything more degrading than being reduced to being a maintenance person and like how awful that would be compared to his other like whatever high paying job and I get that it was probably like a case about I don't know like age discrimination probably um but I'm just like sitting there as somebody who comes from a very working class background um and has people in my family that have had similar jobs to that, which are very respectable careers, and they do a lot for the world. Like, just having it be so blatant in class that people think that's like a degrading way to live your life, it just really disgusted me. And I just remember, like, in those moments, feeling so isolated and feeling so different from some of my peers who either come from wealth or like have wealth of their own, and hearing how they think about people in different situations was really disheartening um and I think there could also be more done to address that within our classes um and even in how we're discussing the cases um because when you hear things like that um and people like essentially talking down about an experience you yourself have gone through I don't know how you can just learn the doctrine and move on from that and pretend like you didn't hear it or pretend like if your peers knew that you related so much to those people that they were talking about that they'd probably see you differently it's kind of hard to explain but that's something that I definitely had to think about that I don't think all students go through their first year um I wanted to talk about in this panel too how it's something I alluded to earlier like having a unit on race in a doctrinal class is not the same as integrating a theory into the course because there's not a single law class that race doesn't touch there's not a single interaction you're going to have in law school that race doesn't touch so I think there's a long way to go for professors to develop um, curriculum that appreciates that and does so meaningfully in a way that will last because I don't think one unit will just bleed into the rest of the course. I think one unit is really easy to ignore and I don't think you really get the full picture from that. Something else that I highlighted in this panel um, that I think a lot of you will appreciate is that these feelings of isolation and conversations that are missing, leave students of color um, with the burden of, I call it like becoming gap fillers. And an example of that is this podcast. Like I feel like in the first year, there was so much we were missing out on. Justin and I both thought there were so many conversations that we weren't having in law school. Like we need a space where we can talk about that. 
So let's take a few hours out of our day, like brainstorming and recording, editing this and posting it and promoting it so we can make up for what the institution isn't giving us. And part of that is great because it gave us the experience of trying something so new um, and doing something different, like creating a podcast, which is like so fun and creative. But also we're doing that and we're taking feedback from other students of color and like having conversations about this constantly. And it's time that we're not spending devoting to class and like our studying that we need to do or thinking about our careers, which is a choice that we're making. But I wonder if it really is a meaningful choice when we're doing it because the university won't. And I hope that makes sense that I think a lot of students will push back on this point and say like, well, you don't have to. Um, like for women of color pledge, like they don't have to host our monologues where they allow women of color to like perform creatively to kind of like subvert these traditional expectations of law. And you don't have to create blacklists to the podcast. Like you guys can just stay home and study all day like we do, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think it can be understated how important it is to have spaces where you can express your identity and feel that it's respected and talk about issues that matter literally for your life. We need those spaces so it's not a choice. You can't just leave that behind. That's a privilege of whiteness and it's a privilege of affluence to decide when you're going to engage with race and when you're going to engage with class politics and things like that. That's not something that a lot of black students just get to turn off and on. Um, so we have to create these extra spaces and we have to fill the gaps. We have to start discussion groups. We have to start podcasts. We have to host performances. We have to lobby our professors to talk more about it because white students won't. We have to lobby the university to make curriculum changes because white students won't and white faculty won't. It's not necessarily just a simple choice like, oh, well, I guess I can just forget about my identity and what the law means and what it has done to me and my family for today and just ignore it. Like, that's not something I'm willing to do. And I don't think that's something a lot of black students should have to do or a choice they should have to make. So that's something I tried to bring up. It was very brief. Like, we only got 10 minutes to speak, so... There's only so much you can really say. Um, but I, yeah, I just wanted to highlight how invaluable the work that students of color are doing is to the university and is to other students. And I know that it always makes me feel good when I hear um, either students that ended up at Berkeley after me or ended up going to law school who have listened to the podcast, like that they appreciated us having these conversations or like when our friends would come on the podcast with us and they always really enjoyed themselves and like the chance to express something that they're interested in. I think it really invigorates me personally to keep going. Um, yeah, so the panel was, it was, it was interesting. I was glad to be part of it at the end of the day because like I said, the professors who are part of the panel are really incredible people and they're doing a lot of really great work. Um, on the panel I was on in particular, like I think almost everyone there um, really makes an effort to be there for students of color. Um, I don't know if the same can be said for every single panel because honestly I haven't been able to engage with all of them because of my reservations about um, whether or not the school is actually committed to making some of these changes or they're just like handing us a microphone and then ignoring us. I don't know. Um, and I think it's completely fair for me to be skeptical at this point given what I've experienced in the last two years um, and what I'm sure I'll continue to experience this year. Um, but yeah, I think I just wanted to share some thoughts. I know it's kind of all over the place, but I hope you're able to pull something from that that you kind of identify with. If you want to see my thoughts on this topic, race and legal education, in a hopefully more coherent manner, you can go to like Berkeley Law's YouTube page um, and you'll see their conversations, like uh, panel discussions 
tab or whatever it may be, a playlist on their channel. Um, and you can check out the one that I was on if you want to. Um, I'll never watch it because that's the last thing I need to see is myself on video again. Like I haven't seen that enough on Zoom. But yeah, please, if you want to like see some of my more, some of my thoughts more strung together, go check that out. But I'm glad you were able to kind of like be here in this space with me if you're listening and kind of hear where my head is at um, and where some of my frustrations are. Um, but I do have hope still, even after rambling about how <laughs> awful law school can be for students of color. I do have hope that it will get better and that's because of some really awesome professors and some students who have been advocating so consistently for changes to happen. And I think each generation of lawyers that's coming in is doing such a great job to, I guess, change how law school curriculum is um, and change how conversations in the classrooms are going. And maybe it's a burden they shouldn't take on by themselves, but I'm glad that people feel so confident to take up space in the classroom because it's so needed. And I know other students of color really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Blacklisted. If you are listening, um, please share it with your friends and family if you feel so inclined. Um, thanks for bearing with me as I kind of rambled through some thoughts that I wanted to share. Um, I know it doesn't always make sense, but it does feel very, at least therapeutic for me um, to kind of share what's on my mind and what I've been going through at the time. And I hope it's helpful to maybe some other 3Ls who are struggling through <laughs> through their last year right now or for 1Ls who are struggling through and like just for the first time noticing some of these issues with how race, gender, and class are discussed in the classroom or not discussed. Um, I hope you at least understand that it's something other students before you have noticed and are very willing to engage with you on. And I know personally that a lot of us are so willing to help um, continue the momentum to create changes that are meaningful and that will last to make this experience less terrible for future generations, um, which is the ultimate goal is to really just change how um, we engage with the law school curriculum and how the law school sees their responsibility in shaping the next generation of lawyers. Um, but thank you so much for listening today. And I'm sure Justin will probably um, pop on to like record another episode as well updating you on his experience and kind of what he's been up to because I know it's been a lot um and yeah I'm just really glad that I was able to talk with you all and if you have any comments or questions for us please um reach out to us on Instagram we update sometimes not all the time but it's at blacklisted dot the podcast um and we hope uh you follow us there feel free to dm us anytime or ask us for topics that you want us to cover. Um, we're definitely open to most things. So feel free to reach out and thank you so much for listening.